This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Good morning. You're listening to Pressing Matters, the show where we go beyond the headlines and explore issues driving the press. I'm Philip C. On today's show, I speak to Dr. James Gomez, Regional Director at Asia Centre, as we dissect their latest report titled Online Content Regulation in Asia Pacific. Good morning, James. Could you perhaps walk through how civil society has been holding governments accountable digitally? Yeah, I think civil society generally, and I want to sort of broaden the notion of civil society to also include uh, communities, social movements, and also political parties that are not in power, you know, that broad tent. So what they have often wanted to do was to call out the what I would call the policy blind sites of government strategies, ways of working, and so on and so forth. But the space has always been limited because in the old days, pre-technology as we know it, it was the mainstream media. And this was always under the purview of the government of the day. You know, there were really very little room for maneuver uh, unless you had alternative publications, which often were shut down or you had people protest and all that, that in many cases were also sometimes violently shut down. Now, yeah. things changed uh, with the arrival of the internet in 1995, and by 2010, many of the countries in our region began to have substantial number of people, you know, signing up for the internet. Now, the internet also evolved into uh, simply a highway on top of which a social uh, media was grafted and then also mm-hmm. instant messaging happened. So all of this, you know, allowed now the broad tent of civil society groups to create content and publish it, bypassing the high walls of censorship and uh, mainstream media. Uh, and then it evolved one step further where the users themselves began to generate content. And this content was, of course, shared and consumed um, kind of bilaterally, bilaterally, and then bringing down the value and relevance and the business sense of mainstream media. So that's really, you know, then get voices the plethora of actors who were trying to call the uh, blind spots in public policies and the unethical or corrupt behavior of some public officials. Yeah. Yeah. And you really point out that this internet highway has evolved and changed so much, you know, since its inception in 1995. Are governments behind the curve, you know, in addressing the fast evolution of the internet, you know? Are they always a step behind? Well, I think initially they were simply because uh, the internet kind of, you know, hit us fast and furious. There was an absence of regulation, know-how, and like with all new technology, it was picked up by the the younger ones, right, who were mm-hmm. at the forefront. So I think we had a good 10 years or so where governments were kind of on the back foot, while the broad tent of civil society were able to, you know, harvest that space to call out, the, you know, the policy blind spots. But then we saw a succession of rules being placed. Before the rules were formulated specifically for the internet, governments in the region clutched to the penal code, national security laws, defamation laws as a way of, you know, controlling or punishing undesirable 
comment and criticism that came online. Then they went to a second cluster of laws, which is really to say that anything that is digitally produced is also subject to the printed broadcast law. This this was all kind of the internet, website, blog area. Then we come to social media, you know, your, your Facebook and, you know, YouTube and all that. As that picked up, uh, then governments introduce another couple of laws, types, clusters of laws. One is what we know very well, which is sort of fake news or disinformation laws, uh, where they argue that the content produced and pushed online is fake, so they can censor it and so on. Uh, they also introduce uh, cybersecurity laws, where they said that, you know, uh, there are concerns related to security issues. Therefore, they need to, you know, clamp down on a particular types of expression, especially uh, as it related to, in many countries, the intersectionality between race and religion. Mm-hmm. To some extent, this was the, you know, bringing in the technology dimension to some of the penal code and national security laws. So kind of that's where the internet dance was at, calling out of, you know, blind spots of public policy by the 10th broad tent of civil society. You you kind of paint this progression, but when governments take action, there must be some trigger point, right? Like some election or some uprising that takes place here in Asia. Is that fair to say? Or is it just a gradual realization that they learn from other countries that see it happen, like the Arab Spring, for instance? Here, I think uh, we need to sort of unpack the term government. I think it's not accurate or sharp enough to use the definition or the concept of government to call out the actions of actors who undertake this censorship actions against actors who use the online platform. I think it's it's more accurate to call these actors who do so as the incumbent elites. So if we look at Southeast Asia or the broader Asia Pacific, action is only taken against those who call out lapses in public policy or corrupt practices of public officials when they are members of an incumbent elite. So the elite feels threatened because their power base is uh, put under the spotlight. They are called out for all some of the shenanigans that the public does not approve in terms of moral ethics, in terms of how one should behave when one holds public office, whether in terms of moral actions or financial actions and so on. So it is when this criticism is targeted at the sitting elites that's when it triggers action. Now, it mm. could be in the run-up to a general election, and that is a you know kind of a general nominal norm uh, phenomenon. But it it can also be in periods of civil unrest and disobedience. So it's not an election year, but it's just that there may be enough crowd swell. For example, in Thailand, not too many years ago, there were young people. There was a groundswell against you know the continued presence of the monarchy. And they were calling out for reform. Or, for example, in the Malaysian case, the, the ever popular 1MDB issue where it was, you know, kind of ongoing over several elections, you know, that is called out. Uh, so, or even during COVID, mm-hmm. you know, uh, when uh, in Indonesia, when Indonesia was uh, trying to pass the omnibus law. So you will see it's while, you know, you can, you know, throw up 
uh, an election cycle issue as one you know relevant indicator, but but it's really as and when uh, elites are under threat. So you really make a very clear distinction between the government and incumbent elites, right? And this is where it gets interesting. It is the incumbent elites that use the machinery of government, isn't it, to exert pressure. That that's the biggest challenge, isn't it? And because they 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 hide under the guise of this huge machinery called government. That's why internet service providers, technology companies sometimes have no choice but to capitulate, right? Uh, yes, that's only kind of, you know, uh, half accurate simply because we, we have to unpack, you know, what you just said a little bit further. Yes, you have the incumbent elites. The government is simply the range of government servants or bureaucrats that are in place. And because they take money from the elites through the government machinery, as well as benefits and all of that, so they become a natural ally. Nowhere in the region would you see government servants actually rebel against the sitting elites, not in Singapore. And even if you, you know, go deep and dissect the situation in uh, Myanmar, Myanmar interlocutors will tell you Yes, government servants did boycott military takeover and route, but only up to 10%, mm. right? So the number is very, very small. In most cases, the bureaucrats, to some extent, are compliant and complicit with the behavior of the elites because mm. they derive, you know, financial and, you know, uh, other cursory benefits by being in the civil service. That's why we get the civil service bonus across the region and benefits and all that. So they become an extended machinery of the elite, you know, to some extent. So technology companies, where do they sit? Now, we will have to then understand the anthropology or the sociology of the staffers in the technology company. Just like, you know, I've just unpacked about the government actually is being the elite and then the elite being, you know, propped up by this missionary or bureaucrat who serves as an elite. So now let's look at it. Most of the technology companies, the big ones, are based in Singapore. But if we make an assumption that these technology companies are actually international companies or American companies or Chinese companies based in Singapore, then our analysis would be wrong because the anthropology and the sociology of the staffers in this company are local and Singaporean. If you go deep and look at the profile, you will see two types of people. At some important and senior places, you will have the you will have these companies hiring people from the Singapore establishment, from the media, from the ministry, from the ministry, uh, and, and, and other parts of the larger bureaucracy because they want access to the Singapore elite through hiring of them. Then you have another cluster of employees in these technology companies that are foreign workers. You know, they are guest workers in that sense. They have a contract. They enjoy the perks and benefits of working with a, you know, international or multinational company. They are operating in an authoritarian structure like Singapore. They are not going to be speaking up. They are not going to rock the boat. They're going to take their wage and then they go on. They do make a distinction that they are not part of those who are from the Singapore bureaucratic elite or elsewhere that have been, you know, recruited so that these companies have access 
to the you know elites in Singapore, but the international workers cannot also be relied on to say something sort of critical uh, and independent. So in short, in short, you find technology companies in that sense also being socially trapped and are very much similar and behave in a particular way in authoritarian structures. Yeah, because they actually are not incent they they have a stronger commercial incentive, right? I mean, even when you talk about the Singapore that that the, these two groups actually are quite inherently different. That's why it's very hard for them to to side on the the point of these content creators, right? That challenge the establishment and elites, right? Yeah. So so to unpack further. These two groups do not stand on the side of the content creators because on the one side, you have those come from the Singapore system uh, who, who have the uniform Singapore speak, which is never on the side of the content creators. And then you have all the other foreign workers who work in these big tech companies who are on their own side. They're on nobody's side yeah. because they are just waged employees. This transaction. And yeah. Transaction and they will move on. You know, they're not going to speak up. They will take their wage. It's about getting the benefit and more. So when you have these two classes of people, then, you know, nobody's on the side of the content creators. We're heading into some messages and when we come back, we continue our discussion with Dr. James Gomez, Regional Director at Asia Centre, on their latest report, Online Content Regulations in Asia Pacific. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. Thanks for staying tuned to Pressing Matters on the Morning Run. Today on the show, Dr. James Gomez, Regional Director at Asia Centre. Now, Dr. James, we ended the earlier conversation about how content creators are under so much pressure from incumbent elites and their machinery. But the thing I find more insidious is the trend of trolls and cyber troopers that harass and create false narratives. I mean, how prevalent is this? Well, that, that is also another way that is very popular right now, simply because coming back to that situation of, you know, singling out people, investigating them, and then, you know, putting them through the legal process and all of that. So instead of getting jammed with that way, um, a lot of money is being spent to troll and, you know, generate, you know, hate speech on the basis of false information against, you know, the broad umbrella tent of civil society uh, activists as they call up, you know, blind spots in public policy and the corrupt behavior of public officials. So, you know, there are publicly available documented evidence, you know, in Thailand, in Vietnam, about Vietnam, uh, in the Philippines, where budgets from government are, you know, sent through to the military or the police force where they actually have task force that actively promote the state or state institutions. And there are also, you know, arguments and accusations of, you know, funds, some of it, you know, uh, from individual politicians and all that, or uh, that make their way to PR firms, then they are downstream to content creators and volunteers to troll against uh, these very activists. So this is a big thing, but there is no legislation. So this is where I think also another current debate is going on, which is on the online safety bills, right? Uh, technology companies have units that call uh, trust and safety departments or sections that are also looking into it. However, you know, when you talk about safety, trust, uh, safety, uh, online safety bills, it is not very much targeted 
on the individuals, but rather, you know, it's in support of the state because individuals still do not have enough legislative protection and power to go to a tech company or state agencies to reveal or track the identity of anonymous accounts that do the trolling and spew hate speech. It's on the guise of national security, right? Not personal security. That's right. And uh, so it's state-centric rather than, you know, uh, people-centric. So you have that from the, you know, government state uh, uh, point of view. When you go to the technology companies, they say it's it's an issue of privacy. They cannot reveal the identity of their user, even though that user is, you know, kind of harming and using hate speech or trolling or engaging in online harassment of the other. The current, you know, community standards don't go far enough to addressing. Then we are, with this, we're going into all kinds of complicated and rights infringing, you know, suggestions such as, oh, all accounts then have to be properly registered, that, you know, identities have to be verified so nobody can have, you know, anonymous account and get away with trolling because if somebody trolls, you know, we know it is ABC or identity one, two, three, and therefore we can track and hold that person. So I think that's where we are. The notion of online safety bill is not very, very publicly discussed uh, in Asia or Southeast Asia in particular. It's well developed or, or, or being out in public debate in the, in, in the U- EU as, as well as the UK. But already, you know, uh, interlocutors are saying that even that kind of uh, articulation in Europe and nearby is already problematic because it's seen as a rights infringing. So I think this is where we are at now. Yeah. Yeah. And this is where it becomes a challenge, right? Because then we test, we we see the aftermath of it uh, on NGOs and civil societies where they either just give up or soften their certain positions or have to compromise the way they argue or present their facts and even cop out sometimes, right, with all this heavy-handedness, isn't it? Sure. Uh, f- first, of course, uh, it, it it has a mental health toll. Uh, so it af- affects uh, users and, and uh, those who are subject to that kind of attacks. And uh, secondly, of course, uh, in order to mitigate Severe self-censorship is practice. Uh, this includes also um, efforts not to identify oneself or one's organization uh, or even not publicly announce or share or advertise or promote uh, activities. So you will find that, you know, INGOs in particular or CSOs increasingly will not want to show their logo for activities, will not publicly announce uh you know, future activities. If you go for meetings, you know, people are given the option of not having their photograph taken. So they are, you know, allowed to indicate that to the, you know, to the photographer in the room that through a sticker on their T-shirt or lap, lapo of a shirt or blouse that they don't want to have their photo taken. And it, I've been to meetings where I've seen like more than half the room will have that sticker on a caller uh, indicating they don't want their photo taken. So I think this is where I think we are going a little bit underground, we are going a little bit low tack and all of that. But the unhealthy part of it is then when you, you know, push all of this underground, then, you know, uh, you don't know when it will erupt. 
which is ironic, right? Since the whole point about going digital is to have these open discourse and conversations. And it seems like we are backtracking in response to these things. I guess then the bigger question is the way forward, the actions we must take, right? To reverse course then. Yeah, but I, I, I think those actions that we will take will take place in the context of a disinformation dystopia. And, and uh, the disinformation dystopia would look like this. Uh, imagine you come home, uh, you come to a digitally created uh, information world. You come home, um, you, your face is scanned, you enter, your, let's say, an apartment, uh, there's a window Right. And through the window, you can see signages across the next building uh, with all kinds of information, all digitally created. Then you have a wall device, which you may know as a TV, and it has information coming out, new entertainment, all, you know, uh, software created, artificially created, no real actors. And then you may have a handheld device or a wearable device, which also, you know, shows you, you know, information, whether it's images, moving pictures or text. Now, all of this is machine generated, software generated. So that's the world we are heading to as AI, you know, drives us that way, where organic created information will be worth its weight in gold. And the resistance and the revolution, you know, in such a world will be to generate such organically created information because that's the truth, right? As opposed to all the... Uh, so this is the uh, disinformation dystopia we are heading into and uh, any recommendations that we have would be, you know, placed to subvert or delay, you know, our sort of move or, or, or being sucked into the future disinformation dystopia. That was Dr. James Gomez, Regional Director at Asia Centre. This has been Pressing Matters on the Morning Run. Coming up next is the 10 a.m. News Bulletin, followed by Enterprise, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.